an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to the ID10T Podcast number 964. This episode brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your dreams into a reality, Katie. Well, I guess not just you. I guess anyone listening could probably do this too. Showcase your work or publish a blog or publish some content, sell some products online, services, if you will, have an event page, whatever your special project is. Squarespace does this by giving you beautiful templates, powerful e-commerce. You can customize the look and feel and the settings and the products with just a few clicks. And everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's built-in SEO, um, nothing to patch or upgrade ever, and... 24-7 award-winning customer support. So a dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet, so make it a reality with Squarespace. Check out squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code ID10T to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Thank you to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of the ID10T podcast. Um, There are tickets on sale for my show at the Neptune, October 26th. I believe we're adding a second show. We're adding a second show because the first show did well enough. So I guess there's going to be a second show. Let's go for a third show. (laughs) But I really do want to have like a fun sort of a Halloween-themed show. Um, So I will probably be in costume. I will most likely try to bring Mike Firmer and Abel Richardson and force them to wear costumes. (laughs) And you should wear costumes as well. So spend your Halloween weekend with me uh, in Seattle at the Neptune Theater, October 26th. Second show added. Go to Ticketmaster.com for tickets. Uh, Katie, what do you have on the ID10T corkboard? Judy Garnett writes, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in the middle of 2010, had a double mastectomy in November of that year. I went through four rounds of chemo, lost my hair, the whole shebang. Now with my four-year chemoversary coming up on June 18th, I'm spearheading a haircut-a-thon. Uh, to have people come and get a new hairstyle for summer. All the hair will be going to High Lifeline that helps kids with cancer and their families. It only takes 12 inches of hair, and all hair types are accepted. It's going to be in Santa Monica on June 18th from noon to 4 p.m. You can reserve your spot by emailing R-A-J-E-A-N-N-A at O-U-I-D-A-D dot com. And the best part, it's all free, both for the people donating their hair and the kids that are getting wigs. Uh, Also, Jennifer Elwell writes, I volunteer for a wonderful dog rescue in Northern California called NorSled, short for Northern California Sled Dog Rescue, uh, based in the Bay Area. We specialize in helping out huskies, malamutes, other northern breeds and mixes. Unfortunately, breeding sled dogs has become very trendy, and shelters... 
uh, and rescues end up full of huskies when people don't fully understand how smart and active they are, but with proper stimulation and exercise, they can be the most affectionate and loyal pets you can ask for. We have adoption fairs at local pet stores every Saturday in the East Bay, and you can check out our event schedule and all our available dogs on our website, norsled.org, or follow us on Instagram at norsledrescue. We are always looking for fosters, volunteers, financial support to help for the dogs. Excellent. Thank you, Katie Levine. Those were, those were very nice. I know. I liked them both. I thought they were good. <laughs> um, Katie Levine, who's wearing her Fly to the Mother Flippin' Concord t-shirt. <laughs> I love that shirt. I, I, this was a, I saw them at the Greek, and it was like an amazing show. I might, it have, was to just go, so great. might have to go get that. <laughs> I might have to go online and try to find that shirt somewhere. Um, this episode is my friend Howie Mandel, who is rad. What a great guy. You know, uh, we met, I guess, judged uh, AGT last season, and it was incredible. And now Howie and I totally hit it off, and he came and did At Midnight. And our showrunner, Jack Martin, on At Midnight was also uh, his producer on um, Deal or No Deal. And uh, Howie's, you know, he's someone that I always was a fan of because he's such a fun, great joke writer, and he's so fun to watch on stage. And the thing that's so great about him is that he is also willing to to be open and vulnerable and talk about because obviously he you know he's he has OCD mm-hmm. and so he talks a lot about it uh, and he was just very open and and very honest about about the whole thing and 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 on top of that getting to talk about comedy and sort of the history of comedy uh, with him it was an absolute. I mean, I I feel like I always bend his ear about this kind of stuff, and and he's always very gracious about it. But uh, I really, really, really enjoyed chatting with him for this episode. I went to his offices, very far away <laughs> from where I am. I would I would drive, I would drive anywhere for that guy. I would drive anywhere for you, Howie Mandel. Uh, AGT or America's Got Talent, as people who are abbreviophobic. Does that make sense? Abbreviophobic. Yeah, you just don't like yeah, abbreviations. I get it. I get it. Yeah. yeah. Initial initialism. AGT is initialism <laughs> because you're using the initials of AGT. AGT, uh, May 29th, which has already happened, so it's on, on NBC. Watch America's <laughs> Got Talent. God, last year was so much, it was so much fun, and I'm, I'm excited about this year. It really is one of those shows where you, you just have your mind blown by people who focus on a talent or a thing. And even if they don't nail it, it's not an easy thing to do. They're still getting up there in front of these judges, in front of like America, and they're they're trying. They are, and and I and I also feel like it doesn't even matter what your talent is. Like I've seen stuff kill on that show. Where you're like, wow, someone discovered that they could, I don't know, uh, whatever, make a stage play out of cantaloupes <laughs> and then eat the cantaloupes while in the middle of a, a stage reading of a play. I'm making this up. But it, but the point is, it should show you that you can have a thing, <laughs> whatever your thing is. Yeah. That show can inspire you to like just pursue that, whatever that weird thing is, to the fullest, and yeah. you can be the best at that thing. So uh, I genuinely enjoyed doing it, and uh, Howie was great, and Mel, and Heidi, and Simon too. Like just so, so, so cool and nice, and and uh, and uh, it was it was a it was a real pleasure to get to be involved with it. And so uh, this episode's Howie, and it was also brought to you by Mattress Firm. Mattress Firm, uh, you love lounging on your couches as much as the next person, but when do you binge watch TV or scroll through social media and listen to favorite podcasts? You do that in your bed, usually, 
I mean, I feel like that's well, that's where Lydia and I spend most of our time, by the way. Because when you come home after a long day, it's like yeah. it's just nice to kind of already be in down. bed. So if your mattress sucks and it's lumpy or old or crappy or whatever, it's affecting your sleep, then you really need to upgrade that. And Mattress Firm wants to help you. They'll even deliver your bed right to your door and they'll take away the old one. They have incredibly low prices, and you're not going to spend a ton of money like a millionaire would. Use the code ID10T for 10% off your purchase at Mattress Firm. Go to mattressfirm.com slash ID10T to learn more. Shop online or in-store with more than 3,000 stores around the country. They can offer you deals that others can't. And they're in your neighborhood, ready to help, and they want you to start sleeping better. So go to mattressfirm.com slash ID10T and use the offer code ID10T to take your 10% off. But this offer won't last long. Hurry! Also sponsoring this episode of the podcast, Felix Gray. All right. Uh, You spend a lot of time in front of your computer. You're at work. You're at home. You have your phone up to your face. You have your computer up to your face. You have your video game system up to your face. You're staring at the screen, and that is exhausting. You can get digital eye strain, which is a legitimate thing where you get eye fatigue, dry eyes, migraines, blurry visions, etc. It can be hard to concentrate. But when you protect your eyes with a beautifully designed pair of Felix Grey computer glasses, you can keep doing the things that you love to do. Felix Grey's lenses are specially designed to filter blue light and eliminate glare from screens, which are the two main culprits behind digital eye strain. They have blue light filtering technology embedded into the lens, so they're effective without the yellow tint or the color distortion that other blue light filtering glasses have. They really spend the time to make these right. Felix Grey's frames are handcrafted from premium Italian acetate, the same material used by the biggest designer brands in the world, and they're very stylish, and there's no prescription necessary. Their glasses are available in non-prescription readers, and they just launched prescription lenses so everyone can benefit from wearing a pair of Felix Grey's. All orders are free shipping and free returns, so you have literally nothing to lose. Go to felixgrayglasses.com, felixgrayglasses.com, slash ID10T to try a pair of Felix Grey glasses today. That's felixgrayglasses.com, slash ID10T. Thanks for sponsoring this episode of the ID10T podcast, which is Howie Mandel. Katie, roll it. Initiating ID10T protocol. Deep in valley territory. Is this weird for you to be this deep in the valley? Is it- no, I feel okay. I feel okay. I think I'm okay? going to be okay. I think I'm going to be okay this far in the valley. I have GPS now. I think I can figure out how to get back home from here. I'm, look- I'm looking at the uh, St. Elsewhere caricature. Yes. Yeah, can you... Well, I'm in the middle. Yeah, you know, the, the, that was when I really started to realize, because in my head, comedians were comedians, dramatic actors were dramatic actors, and that was... Kind of when I started to realize, oh, yeah, c- people can do all sorts of things. They don't have to just be comedians. You know what? I, but for me, the pursuit getting sane elsewhere, which uh, I, if anybody is of the – it was in the 80s, yep. the early 80s. It was a, it was a drama. Mm-hmm. It was like Hill Street Blues. But a medical drama. A medical drama run by Bruce Paltrow, Gwyneth's father. It's, I, it, I was pursuing comedy. 
So what happened was I got an HBO special. I did a Young Comedians HBO special. I remember it. It was me and one of our alumni just passed away this week. Harry Anderson. Harry Anderson just passed away. Me, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Richard Lewis, and uh, there was a couple of other people, Harry Anderson, on it. And uh, having come to the next level what what I believe was the next level of my career I got I was selling out in you know in in theaters I said you know everybody moves from stand up comedy to a sitcom so I went and my uh, agent set up, set up a general meeting for me at MTM Mary Tyler Moore yep. which was predominantly known for sitcoms though they did have Hill Street Blues on the air and I had a general meeting with this young lady uh, Molly Lapata I'll never forget. She was the uh, casting. And I went in for the meeting. And it was in deep in the valley also, right uh, at, at Radford Studios. And she, I, I introduced myself. And I had done comedy. And she said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, sitcom might be the, the way to go. And maybe I can do my, you know, just play myself, but in a, in a sitcom. And she said, well, can you act? And I said, I, I don't. No, I don't know how to answer that. I really, I don't know. I mean, you tell me. Can I act? So she said, read this. And she gave me the uh, aside, you know, a piece of a script. And I, and I read it. And it was uh, all this medical jargon. I didn't really even understand what was coming out of my mouth. And uh, she said, that's very good. Could you, could you come down the hall? And I said, yeah, I'll go down the hall. And I go down the hall, and there's this – it uh, broke into a meeting. Uh, now I know it was like Mark Tinker, mm-hmm. whose father owned MTM. Grant Tinker, Grant Tinker was, yeah. was married to Mary Tyler Moore, you know, and, and, and running the network. And Bruce Paltrow, who I didn't know, and some other people who went on to do huge things. And they, she said, read this for them again. So I read that same thing. And this is on a, this is on a Friday. And halfway through – the reading, uh, they went, "Eh, fine, 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 thank you. And I left. And I went home and my wife said to me, how did that go? And I go, well, it didn't seem to go well. (laughs) But but that being said, it wasn't that funny. Right. Because I had no context. You know, I didn't know what I was reading. And I was reading all this medical jargon. Within minutes of getting home, they said, could you come back I got a phone call from my agent saying, could you go back, but go right into Burbank, go uh, to Brandon Tartikoff's office. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So I got, so I got in the car. And it's I like had, the head of NBC at the time. Yes, the head of NBC and probably one of the giants of all broadcasting. You know, he made TV what it is today everywhere. But anyway, but I, at that time, it was just Brandon Tartikoff. He was the, pre- well, just, just the president of the network at the time. So I go there, and this is still on that Friday afternoon, and, I, and uh, when I get there, they lead me into Brandon's office, and in Brandon's office was the same group of guys that were in the office at MTM, and they said, could you read this, uh, that same thing for Brandon now? So I, re- I read that same thing, <laughs> and they went, uh, you know, could you just wait outside for a minute? And I said, all right, and I, I left the office. I had no idea what was happening. And then they all walked out, and they went very good. And I go, thank you, thank you very much. And I'm, and I, I went home. I'd like to say somebody called me in the car, but there weren't even. We car didn't phones. have that then. We didn't have that. And I go home, and my agent called me and said, "Congratulations, you start Monday." This was a Friday, and I say, "I start on what?" And they said, "Well, you've been cast in St. Elsewhere." And I go, "Well, it's not, it's not." funny it's not <laughs> it's not funny and i was cast as Fic- fiscus now 
I don't know that people know this. I ended up for six years. This is a show where Denzel Washington came out of. I I replaced somebody. They had been shooting for five days and they shut it down and they recast. Oh, I'm that- not the original Fiscus. The original Fiscus went on to win an Academy Award. His name is David Pamer. Oh, oh my God, David Pamer. David Pamer. Holy shit. Was let go, and then I I replaced him. As Fiscus. I, I always felt terrible when I knew it was David Pamer, but then he did really well. And it all worked out okay. He did, he did okay. Yeah, and David, he, did, he worked out just fine. A Mr. Saturday Night was an Academy He was in Quiz Award. Show, too. He was in Quiz Show, and Mr. Saturday Night, he played Billy Crystal's brother. Yep. And, and that's, he got nominated for an Academy Award, I think, for that part. Oh, man. And then, uh, so I went on, and for six years, I worked alongside uh, Denzel. And to this day... Uh, Denzel will call me from the set saying, Howie, how would you play this scene? <laughs> so I know people think. So it was a lifelong relationship that you forged and where now you've ultimately, I mean, I don't I guess you're responsible for Denzel's career as a grand statement, but you know, but you contributed a lot to. Well, no, I think I'm responsible. And I also think <laughs> that when people are watching any movie that, uh, that Denzel is a, a part of, you're really seeing a piece of me. Well, I know in the book, and when he did the book of Eli, he was blowing up a glove on his face, and I thought that was a very bold choice, you know, to take that. Thank you. To take that. Thank you. (laughs) St. Ellsworth is an amazing show because it was such a fixture of 80s television. Right. And, is still one of the most talked about finales, I think, for people who know the history of television, that the entire episode they suggest is in the mind of an autistic, of an child. autistic child who's looking at a snow globe right. with the hospital. Right. And so the reason that that is very impactful is not only because it sort of explains the whole series of St. Elsewhere, but if you follow all the crossovers that happened during St. Elsewhere, because I think Hill Street Blues probably crossed over. There were a couple shows that would cross over occasionally. Mostly other um, shows that have, like, things like that that had already been done. Like, they were crossing over and using same character names of people in The White Shadow, and the, which was his previous show. Right, so that means all that of all of those shows were also, by proxy in the mind of this child so that this child basically imagined all of these hit television shows because well, they're all part of the same universe. No, this whole podcast is inside the mind of an autistic child. I'm glad you brought that up um, because that's 100% what's happening. <laughs> right. uh, but, you know, you also mentioned the, um, the Young Comedian special. And I remember, let's see, Saget's was the ninth. Right. The one that was Saget and Louis, you were the sixth because that was a few years before. Right. And... I guess it's hard for people now who don't really understand what that meant back then, but when there were really only a handful of outlets at the time, a handful of channels, that Young Comedian special made comedy stars. I mean, it really defined the comedians. Like, when you go back and look at all those early ones, like, pretty much everyone from those went on to become comedy stars. You know, the difference between starting as I did, I started in the 70s, but and starting today is well, maybe you can. I guess on on digitally you can blow up overnight and become viral, but I don't even know that that really changes your life. You know, in in the days when I was coming up there was, you know, three networks and then, you know, there's four channels. They ended at, you know, they signed off. Yeah. TV signed off. I yeah. remember seeing the national anthem and the flag going, or in the morning, if you got up early, you saw a test pattern. So if you were lucky enough to be part of anything on television, you're. Uh, 
the next day your life was different. You know, the, you, your recognition factor went up. And then if you did something like a young comedian special or a Tonight Show, any one of one of those two, it was like you were just catapulted into a into a whole new world. And I was when I did the young comedian special. You know, I shot it at the Roxy, the on here on Sunset Strip, and I didn't know anybody or anything and. I shot it and it aired. I was casted by it, it, the the producer on it was George Carlin's wife. Oh wow! Yeah, so she 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 gave me the job. You know, every night at the comedy stores where you know we all had like our home base, whether it was the comedy store, whether it was the improv at that time. Every night at the comedy store, you didn't know who was in the audience. You know, she was happened to be there. I wasn't showcasing to be on a on a young comedian special. She saw me and right there said, "You'd be." perfect for this special that i'm one of the the hbo specials and and being from canada well even at that time i don't i didn't even realize what that meant i thought that meant i had i got a job <laughs> you know i didn't realize how life-changing that job would be and that job really legitimately it was like night and day from the time hbo started airing that and hbo at even at that time had a fraction of subscribers and viewers that they probably have today right but it meant so much to be on these shows it's just a different world today you can be on tv it doesn't matter <laughs> being on to being on tv if you're like hey who gives a shit i have more instagram followers than your tv show okay all right you know right, but but i think because of reality television and because yeah. of the way we are and because of the internet being broadcast someplace doesn't mean anything right and i, and I, I to this day nobody's more thankful than me when somebody comes up and they know my name or they recognize or they say that, the, you know, they like something that I did or they remember, I can't tell you what that means to me because for the most part, I say I walk up to somebody and you probably because you, you're you like a little encyclopedia in your head. But, you know, a number one show is NCIS. Right. You know, uh, can you aside from Mark Harmon, because I worked with him on on St. Elsewhere, can you name the stars of NCIS? You probably can. No, uh, I haven't. uh, Well, let's see. There's uh, Lady McFeely and Tom Tomston. And uh, I think those are just those two. Okay, so but but my point (laughs) is on broadcast television. In any given week, they probably have 15 million viewers. It's probably the number one, you know, scripted show on broadcast television. And the fact that you don't even know their names. Yeah. You know, I just remember that in the 70s, if somebody was on TV, you knew their name. Even if you didn't watch the show. It was a big deal. In fact, you know who Donnie Most was? Yes, of you course. Know, Donnie Ralph Most. Ralph. Was, but what I'm saying is you watched Happy Days. You knew what the third character's real name was and what he did in life. Today, you have no idea. It doesn't matter. But isn't that interesting, though, that even with that, that you ended up working on a show that exposes new talents to the world? Because people who... People who crush on AGT, you know, they're clips that go viral, and people really do know who they are. I mean, like, with almost overnight, that actually weirdly does happen on AGT because that clip that I was on from the show I was on last year with Angelica Hale and I gave her the golden buzzer, people talk to me about that in public a lot. And it, people really do watch that show as a way to discover new people. And here's – they do. But I also think that in the last three years, we have opened up to the internet much more than any traditional broadcast television has. You know, uh, the Golden Buzzer, uh, last, uh, the, the winner of last year, Darcy Lynn, mm-hmm. her Golden Buzzer, because we, as you know, and you've been part of this, we pre-tape the auditions. 
her golden buzzer already had they release it online and on YouTube and on Facebook and on the, she had 10 million hits before our show aired but then uh, pieces of that so they watched that so I think that broadcasting it along with what's happening on the internet is making our show and those people much more prevalent in as far as having information knowing their names and and than any other show plus we are the only bastion of variety television there is and the only bastion of not just a game show where people can win money but where people's personal lives and dreams change right in front of their eyes you know i'm surprised that there aren't more variety shows on television well they're hard to make because you there are so many when a show really works and it feels very seamless, it's easy to take for granted. Like, oh, they, oh, that's easy. They just throw a bunch of people up there and then they got the judge. And but there is, there is, for anyone who's ever made a t- television show, knows that a successful show is a delicate chemistry of all the moving parts of the directing and the lighting and the music and the social media team and the people who are guests on the show and the hosts on the show and the concept of the show. That it's. You know, several things have to go very right in concert with one another for a show to be a hit. It just isn't – it isn't an accident, and it isn't an accident for it to continue to be a hit and to grow. And so I, it doesn't surprise me that there aren't more variety shows on because they're just fucking really hard to make. Like a really good one's really hard to make. Right, and I think that they cracked the code on AGT, but I think that there should be more people trying. You know, it's kind of amazing because every year I think, you know, we've seen it all. And then just when you think you've seen it all, you realize you ain't seen nothing yet. And you realize how deep this pool of talent is. And I think that almost everybody and probably anybody listening to this really has a talent. But I I can't remember who said it, but 99% of making it is just showing up. And every year we have these people that just show up. And whether they show up and they think of these things that are so out of the box. Like I was watching the the, the two nights ago. I don't think you were at this one. Did you see the Diablo uh, Mochi? I saw the Diablo guys. No, the guys. I'm talking about guy. No. So the, the, the this guy Mochi. So he's got Diablo, which is for those that don't know, it's that little it's yo-yo. It's like a big juggler's yo-yo, basically. On a string. But he did it in front of a project, projection screen where he did these amazing graphics that were um, – kind of um, programmed exactly in time with his routine. So he had to follow what was on the screen. At the same time, he's tap dancing while he's got, you know, these lasers in the dark. I mean, just the the concept of coming, you know, I'm, I'm going to tap dance and I'm going to create uh, graphics and I'm going to do the Diablo. It, like, how does this all come together? And I'm fascinated with the fact, not only seeing the act ultimately, but why? How did you think of that? Why did you... That's a great point because it, you know, uh, I, I always go back to this quote and I always fuck up the quote, but I think you'll appreciate the gist of it. I've said it a lot on the podcast, but it was a Bill Hicks quote and it was the, it, it was sort of in the idea that, you know, the more yourself you are, the less competition you have. So it basically means the stronger your voice is, the more unique you are to yourself. There's no one else like you. So you take a guy like that who probably is interested in tap, he's interested in graphics and lasers, and he's interested in Diablo, and he, and he must have realized, oh, I love all of these things, I'm going to mash them all together. And so what you get is a completely unique thing because it's very much a part of who he is. So you're not just watching a guy do a talent act, you're watching a guy do a very 
you know, in in real life representation of who he is and what his soul is. And I think that's part of the magic. And because it's so authentic to who he is, it's better than just watching someone who's very technically proficient just do the technically proficient thing. Well, you know, speaking of philosophical philosophy, that is the best philosophy. You know, it's about just doing it and not doing it and not thinking. You know, I think that most people, aside from this business, think about, you know, they put themselves together, they say things because they think that this is, you know, how people might want to perceive them, right? If I'm the president of the bank, I got to dress a certain way, I got to act a certain way. They're all about how other people are going to perceive them. If you look at the people that really make it in life, and I'm not talking about in show business, but show business is a great, you know, uh, example of it, they're people that kind of exactly what you said we're kind of intuitive and and uh we're still taking calls hello yes i was just uh calling in to tell you the names of the actors on ncis uh, <laughs> you guys really dropped the ball on that one. Oh, sorry we don't have time okay i understand <laughs> click that was good oh thanks that was totally yeah, i didn't know we were taking call-ins but you know you gotta roll with it that is yeah and and uh we'll put up a tote board how much have we raised so far uh zero dollars howie we've raised zero dollars so far dollars. phone lines are still open uh, zero dollars so far. But I'm saying you're a perfect example of this, being true to yourself. You know, you're, you're the nerdist. You're the guy that was interested. In, number one, you're interested in comedy. Number two, you're interested in like science fiction and all these comic books and all these. Other, look at your career. Your career just became what this little nerd kid. <laughs> no, but and you're phenomenal at it. Oh, but thanks, that's man. But that's the exact same. Th- that's the same thing as you were just speaking of. If you can. For me, it was an impulse. I did not pursue this this business. Uh, everything I've ever been punished for, expelled for, hit for is what I seem to get paid for today. Um, I couldn't – I don't have a GED. I could not uh, stay in school. I was asked to leave many schools because of behavioral problems. Um, I went in the mid-'70s to a comedy club. I'd never been to one. Yuck Yucks? And, um, yes. Mm-hmm. Yuck Yucks in Toronto. And it happened to be the the, the uh, MC came on and said, if you, if you want to try this – you know, Monday nights and somebody I was sitting with went, you should do it. I went, okay, no thought to what I was going to do. And I just did it. And I'm just myself. And it, it, who would think that what was perceived as a problem as a child would become a career as an adult. But you realize that if you don't think about it and you don't plan or you just, you be you, you know, there is something to be said. And there's something about humanity that just is such, such a beautiful treasure of, uh, you know, I had this friend, Denny Dent. Do you know who Denny Dent was? I don't was? think so. Denny Dent passed away, but he was the first guy that you probably saw him on television. He used to do those speed paintings with two hands. He was at Woodstock. And, uh, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones would play. And in one song, he could get a perfect painting of uh, Mick Jagger on a giant canvas. Did you ever see that on no, TV? No, but it sounds amazing. So write some music with two hands. And he became the... Uh, kind of the motivational uh, Bill Gates motivational uh, entertainment for his company and he talked about how every he didn't know he found this talent within himself but he wouldn't think about painting with both hands no brushes in six (laughs) minutes it just he did it one day out of his whole something emotional came over him and made him do it and his point was we're all artists you know you think of an artist as somebody with a paintbrush and some paint but we're all artists and I don't care if you're answering the phone and I don't care if you're cutting somebody's hair or you're a secretary or an accountant. 
the creative juices of just being a human and, and going by our instinct and finding new and exciting and different ways of doing things. And you don't have to look for that, but just being yourself, if you embrace that, you're going to, you know, tread new ground that has never been no done matter before. what, no matter what the discipline is or what you're doing, you can be creative about anything. Right. And but, I mean, Columbus got on a boat, which he thought was a, you know, a, he and it's just pushing the boundaries. He didn't care. As far as anybody was concerned, the world was flat. Right. Right. But he was going to prove. But he had no way of proving. But he just felt it's just he had to do it. And you just got to go for it. And you got to be without fear. You just got to be you. You got you got one life and you everybody's living their life for everybody else. You know, on stage, I don't do what I think you're going to think you're going to laugh at. I do. what makes me laugh. Right. Well, and that's why – one of the reasons why I always loved your comedy whenever I would see you on any of the million stand-up specials that populated television in the 80s was that it, it became – you know, stand-up became such a business in the 80s in terms of being able to make comedy stars so they could tour or get a sitcom or whatever. And so there were a lot of guys who followed the set-up punchline joke, set-up punchline joke. And I always loved watching you because you had this sort of persona of like – Oh, I'm like a class clown who just has fun on stage and fucks around because it's silly, no matter what it is. And you'd play with the audience, you'd do prop work, you'd tell jokes, you'd, just like any 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 avenue to be fun and entertaining on stage. And your comedy special where you went through the mall is genius. Thank you. You know, the truth is, I, and it's all subjective, you know, as much as you might think that's genius, the other people think. Why did I? Why was I even given a dollar to do a special? <laughs> but and and I believe that you know. And I also err on uh, on the uh, negative. I'm I'm a glass half empty guy, even though my my uh, persona is kind of joyful and everything. But I mean, I remember on the the height of my career as a stand up comic, I'd sold out two nights at the Radio City Music Hall, and I was standing at in my dressing room in between shows, looking out onto Seventh Avenue there, and, yeah. and seven thousand people are are you know piling out of the theater as 7,000 people are piling in for the next show and they've got they're cordoned off the street and there's cops and it's New York City and my wife goes isn't this amazing you don't look like you're happy and I thought well you know this is 15,000 people or 14,000 people in a city of 10 million you know (laughs) so ultimately 9,985,000 people don't give a shit so if we're looking at the numbers right it's actually not but what i was saying was when you when you talk about comedy you know you go to an amateur night and you watch somebody on stage and it's just you know there's nothing more uncomfortable than silence right and somebody just struggling really hard and you go well why is this person like what made this person – nobody's there of their own volition. Everybody's there because one other person at a dinner table or in their house or their roommate go, you're funny, man. You got to – you should – you got to do that on stage. you know. And they, and they get up and they do it. And as luck would have it, that sensibility doesn't translate to more in their buddy that told them to get up. Not always. They have, we, to, find, they have to find that on stage. But – I think there is a big part of luck involved that my sensibility or your sensibility, my sense of humor translated enough so that a handful, like a room full of people, 
we'll laugh. And if you could touch the funny bone of more than people just at the Thanksgiving table, if you are, if you have that ability, then kudos to you. Whether I get the joke, whether I like the joke, whether and I always felt like within the comedy community, there's a there's it's kind of evil. Like they when you talk about props, you know, people put uh, the, one comic will put down another comic because he just does. Oh, prop, it's a prop comedy. Oh, it's a know, guitar comic. Oh, and you know, a, and and people have uh, you know. Have, been you know i'm friends with scott Caratop. yep you know and and he has been the butt of some internal jokes by comedians he'll sure. say that not respect you got to respect that man because he not only you know creates his own act builds his own props nightly in vegas that room is roaring and if that room is roaring they can't be wrong. You know, I, I, and I don't, first of all, I'm not a comedy snob in that way. I don't begrudge anyone whatever tools they use because everyone's, everyone's different. I think for Carrot Top, I honestly just think it was his name that people would go, oh, Carrot Top, you know, because it's a, it's a silly sounding name. If, if he just went by, oh, if it was Scott Thompson, the guy who does right. the, pre- who also is the same name of the kid, as the kids in the hall guy, um, that uh, I, I don't think, I don't think he would have gotten as much shit. You know, I think it was I think it was the name. I think it was the crazy hair in the name that people sort of looked at him as like, oh, that's a that's he's like a clown. He's like the clownish side of stand up. And I'm a you know, I talk about real shit. And it's like, well, so what? That's your tool set. And that's his tool set. And but no one's one wrong. But but it is. But it's all subjective. It's like, of course, saying, it is. You know, like whether you like country music, whether you like classical music, whether you like EDM or whether you like pop, one isn't be- that is a style of comedy. But his brilliance and he's brilliant he's much more successful than nine out of the ten of the people that are you know shitting on him i love him and i don't have any i i no, never, but i had that too yeah you, i was shit on too i was the guy that you know uh, people write their uh, you know political uh satire and i would show up and pull a rubber glove on my head and they yeah. go well what is what is that and why is he being booked or selling out a theater and i'm writing I sit for hours and hours and hours and go through the paper and 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 talk about what's happening and you know and and this idiot shows up and puts a rubber glove on his head. Yeah, but they're also underscoring again. It's sort of like looking at similar to what I was saying about looking at a show like AGT, a successful show, and going, "Oh, well, that's not hard." It's like, yes, it is. I mean, you the, putting the glove on your face to someone who thinks that going through the newspaper is somehow more valuable. They're discounting the fact that. It's authentic to who you are. You figured out how to do it, make it connect with an audience. Like it's not that it's it's not that it's not work. It's just different. It's just different, and you can't say that you know because I've and I've struggled sometimes on the road early on. I struggled with writing wordier jokes. Oh, these this is this is so much more meaningful. I'm like, now nah, people just want to have fun. And if you're a guy that can write wordy jokes and that's fun to you, great. And if you're a guy that can stretch a glove over your face or pull tiny phones out of a chest on stage, it doesn't matter. Like an audience just wants to connect with the person on stage. They want to forget about their lives for an hour and just have a good time. So it doesn't to me. It doesn't really matter how you go about doing that. You know, for me, comedy is mining. It's find finding it. Like I, I don't, um, I don't buy it. I mean, I have. I've had. I've had writers, but I mine it. I don't know. Like if you would have asked me the night before I put on the glove on my head whether that is funny, I would have said probably not. Is anybody going to laugh at it? Probably not. 
would I plan on trying it? No, that came out of a moment. And this is how this is indicative of how I most of my comedy has come to me. I, you know, I'm a well-known germaphobe and I have OCD. I carry rubber gloves with me. I have for decades. And I was on stage with nothing to do. And that's how my act started. I was a very, (laughs) like, I never thought of the ramifications. From the time I got dared to go up, I didn't plan anything. So when when they were like, okay, you have to do an hour, you're like, shit, what am I going to do for an hour? Well, it wasn't even an hour. It was like five minutes. So I would show up. If you look at old tapes, if you go to YouTube and you look at old tapes of me, I'm very different. I seem to have somewhat of a different persona, but not really. You're looking at a terrified young man who is ill-prepared, and that's what it was. So I would, they, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel, and then I would walk out, and, and in the moment, I'd go, okay, 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 okay. And that was my, my act. <laughs> all right, all right. Something's going to come. Okay, okay. And then you see how you're laughing? You see how you're laughing? Well, I did not getting, no 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 getting but the I, backstory on that's amazing. But that's what it is. So I go, okay, okay. And no, but I'm saying you'd laugh and people would start laughing at me like that. And I go, what? 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 No, tell me, really. What? Okay. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. And that became my act. And I was the guy that people thought I was on drugs. I wasn't on drugs. I was scared shitless with nothing to say. And okay, all right. Um, oh, oh, and I put my hand in my pocket and there's my rubber glove. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. All right. And I'll just pull it over my head. And I started breathing and I realized the fingers started moving and they were laughing. And I go, what, 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 what? And then I started blowing it up with my nose and it popped <laughs> off and everybody applauded. And I, in my mind, I'm thinking, really? Really? Is this a fu- what God. the fuck is this? And that really, that moment bought me a fucking house. You know, I'm going, and I'm going, what, what? And then I realized, and then it was hard, and I can't. I can't, there's no reality to that now because I have a bigger understanding. I've been on stage, you know, I still do 200 nights a year. So I can't play that, and I wasn't, that innocence and, and that of not knowing that. But I still am open to whatever's happening in the moment. God, but that's such a... No, very few people start off that way because that's such an honest, that is such a very honest, like you said, in the moment and real thing that you were going through that you expressed on stage that if you had sat down and been like, okay, uh, people want to hear about this. I'm going to write these jokes and see how they go. And then some of them will work and some, but that's just such a. I guess I got to stand on stage and figure this out. And that's what you were experiencing in the moment. And I think part of what people were picking up on was the authenticity of that moment. Right. Because it was, because it was real. Like that right. was real. And on some level, that was resonating with their molecules that you were having that moment on stage. And that's really fucking funny. It is. And all comedy is kind of relatable. When you write your comedy, if this is something that really tickles your funny bone and you think this is ridiculous and you're really saying it and you really believe it, you know, I think that the audience hooks into you. And the fact that I was this scared, terrified, but I love that, that fear, you know, and I still love it. And I, and I go for it today. I'm still a fan. I'm in my 60s. And I love anytime I can go to an amusement park, I die to go to an amusement park. And when I'm working around, you know, anytime there's a roller coaster, I want to go on every roller coaster. I love that. And that's the analogy. I look to the higher it is, the scarier it is, the closer you think you're coming to death the more your adrenaline pumps and when somebody when it when i walk out on stage and you know obviously after you know 40 years in the business i have a plethora of material and voices and things to to draw from but if i could be taken off the beaten path if something could go wrong you know uh, technically 
or there's a noise in the audience or something is happening in that moment that is such joy that gives me such joy and the worst moments turn into the best moments you know i talk about and i think you know this as a comic you know the glass is always half empty so you can have a room that is roaring but one person has a sour face. In and the you front. focus right on that one person. That's it. it What's becomes, that guy's problem? Right. It becomes about that. Not the fact that 6,000 people are screaming and laughing and having the night. And they, they're not aware because this person is facing you. And, and that happened to me one night where I, I just went, you know, there's one person and I'm looking and they're, they're roaring and you've got to roll. And, you know, once you start them going, it doesn't matter what you say. It's like, a, it's like an engine of laughter and hilarity and excitement. And I'm in the, in the throes of it. And there's this one guy who's not making any eye contact with me. He's not looking at me and he's just kind of sitting there and he's looking off in another direction. Like he looks like, what the fuck am I doing here? Why did you bring me here? So Finally, I just like an idiot because I have I'm a bad impulsive. feeling about. Yeah, I went. Hey, hey, stop! Everybody, stop! Stop! I know you're having. Stop a good time. the momentum of the yeah, show. Yeah, stop. Can I just say something? I'm going to stop right here. The guy here with the blue sweater in front, who is not looking at me, oh, who doesn't no. seem to enjoy myself. Oh, no. What the fuck is up with you? What the fuck is up with you? Yeah, and you you got it. The lady beside him goes. He's blind. <laughs> and I said, what? What? Like an idiot. I heard it because I didn't know what. She goes, but he's that, blind. That had to turn into one of the best moments of the show. Wait. So I go, he's blind. And you could hear a group, like a, a massive gasp. And it just sucking from a moment of, it was like a nuclear holocaust of comedy just right. sucked out of the room, right? right? He's blind. Why did you fuck up? Why'd you have to stop? And he's not smiling and she's going like, you stopped the whole show and you put it, you put this, uh, this light on us and like, and, and it was just quiet. And I said that I said, Oh my God, I just, I, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know. This is like, you just sucked the comedy out of the room. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, but can I ask a question? And I was serious. I go, why the fuck? Would you pay for front row tickets <laughs> for a blind man? You could put him in the fucking balcony and tell him it's the front row. He wouldn't think the same. And that that turned in that minute. That could have gone either way. Yes. But that came out of my discomfort, out of my fear, out of reality. I shared with the audience how uncomfortable I was. I think the audience felt equally as uncomfortable as me. And in that moment, and that that adrenaline and that fear and that rejection was so to bring it back to drop into that deep hole that's like that first little huge drop that you have at a roller coaster i felt that on stage and and i go for those moments all the time well, i don't the look best. to embarrass anybody but. no of course not but i think when people go to a comedy show they want and this is why it's so difficult to shoot comedy for you know to, like for television right because it's such a it's such an intimate communal experience and i think when people go to a comedy show they just want to be a part of something they want to be a part of that ride and so you know a, a lot of my set is riffing with the audience and sometimes it's hard to follow the rips with stuff that I've written because the riffs are about the experience that we're all having and the, and the written stuff is about experiences that I've just had. Right. And so it, it, it can be challenging sometimes to just make sure that people feel as included as possible because that's what they want. And that's a moment well, in the 80s, they all had it together. In the 80s, I did a show called Howie Wood. It, it was, it was, I think it was a Showtime special actually, but it was in the round. And obviously, when you prepare for these specials, you do, you know, uh, an extensive amount of preparation. And, you know, I had my hour. I had my new hour. The, the piece that to this day 
I get texted, emailed, tweeted about is, and it's my favorite part of the show. So it's theater in the round. And this woman in the middle of my act gets up to go to the ladies room. I mean, she got up, I assume to go to the ladies. She got up and I watched her as I'm talking and, and performing. I watch her leave, go up the aisle and leave the door closed. So in the middle, and this is what I just got off the, I just thought this is the round. It looks the same no matter where you turn. So I'm going to just stop my act for a minute. Are you with the lady that left? Yeah, you are. Okay. Let me take, it took forever. Let me take the 50 people in this area, get 50 people in this area, stand up, Walk across the stage. Go over here. Let me mix you up. Let's take 50 people here. So nobody, <laughs> nobody looks the same. And then, and then I moved. I just shuffled everybody so that when she came down that aisle, no, nothing would be recognizable. And I told the audience that. And I said, listen, I'm going to be doing my act. I will give you a signal where I will hit the mic twice, you know, that I see her coming in the door. Just don't let her know that we're focusing on her. But let's just continue to laugh and watch what happens. I promise you this is going to be great. If it doesn't make the special, it's just great. Com- this is much more right. what I'm into. I'm, and we'll talk about that because I'm into candid camera more than any other thing, more than stand-up or anything. But, but she comes down the aisle. The door opens. I'm doing my act. She comes down the aisle, and you see her walk to her aisle. She looks down the aisle. She doesn't see, doesn't see any face that looks <laughs> remotely like anybody she knows. She looks at her ticket. And then she turns around, she goes back up the aisle, and the door closes, the audience roars. Within 30 seconds, another door opens on the circle, and the same lady, looking at her ticket, comes down the aisle, (laughs) is looking, looking up and down the aisle, and then goes back up and disappears in the door. And you watch over the course, it doesn't last this long on the special, but you could still see it on the special. It was over the course of the next 20 minutes. She had gone in and come out every door and walked down, looked at her ticket and and walked down. And to this day, she still writes me. She emails me. This is like 1989. She said that she was pregnant at the time and she, you know, her bladder was, you know, uh, full constantly. And she'll never forget that kid is probably, you know, almost 40 years old, 30 years old now. That she had, but she, the, people go, you're the lady that walked up and down the aisle. How did you let on? Uh, did you finally go, okay, I was just screwing with you. This okay, so at, at, at a certain point, I think that's in the special, she came down. The joke was over after seven times, but yeah. if it's over after seven times, me always wants it to go 14 times. Right, Because I like, I like it to be over, then not funny, and then, it then obnoxious, funny yeah. then it's funny. Yeah. But I, you got you to gotta <laughs> wade through that shit. So finally, when it was obnoxious uh, or past that, I just said can I just stop the show? And she was like at her wits end. She's in the thing. I go, ma'am, I'm trying to do a fucking concert here and you keep interrupting coming up and down the aisle. She goes, I can't find my husband. (laughs) And then we we sat her down, but I I gave into her and she got a big hand and it was kind of a nice thing. Oh, that's fun. But to me, that's funnier than any material. I was, you know, as a kid, I've always felt like a misfit. And I talk about my entree into comedy was my memory is there's always a lot of laughter in my house. And my parents used to stay up and watch Jack Parr and Johnny Carson and and I'd hear laughter. But I was like four or five years old and when I'd sit down, I'd, I'd run in because they were laughing and I'd watch what they were wa- watching and I didn't, it didn't connect. I didn't really understand. Like if somebody talked about a mother-in-law, I didn't even know what a mother-in-law you're for. Right. What is a mother-in-law? What's a mother-in-law joke? What is, it means nothing. And my mom and dad would be laughing. And one particular time, I was probably five years old on a Sunday night He's my hero, Alan Funt. 
had a show called Candid Camera. Of course. And that's the beginning of all this hidden camera and punk that we see today. But that was the beginning of it. Didn't know this. So I sit down with them. They're watching it. It's Sunday night. And he explains to the audience, I'm going to hire people. I'm going to hire this young lady who's going to think that she's a receptionist. And her only job is to answer the phone every time it rings and we have a desk set up. But let me show you something. We've tied a rope to the legs of the desk. It drilled a hole in the wall. And on on the other side of the wall, when she goes to reach for the phone, we're going to pull the the rope and the desk is going to go away from under her. Now, as a, as a little kid, I understood this was like a little surprise party. I know what's going to happen. And that anticipation was so exciting. And it was so, and we were just sitting there and me and my mom and my dad, we all knew that something funny, we were in on the joke. Nobody else on TV was in on the joke. The girl sits down, the phone rings, they pulled the rope, her jaw drops. Like what the fuck just, and it was the funniest thing. It's not a joke. It's not, it is a setup, but the punchline was real human, awkward, kind of discomfort. Right. And I learned that discomfort was my sweet spot, Mm -hmm. you know? And for me, even now in comedy, any awkward story, any uncomfortable is my sweet spot. I love that. And it's very relatable. What I didn't understand at the time is, is that you need an audience and a TV show to create that. (laughs) Oh, the the phone is. Hello. All right. Hello. You're calling in. I just wanted to um, uh, pledge zero dollars. Great. We're still at zero dollars on the pledge board. Trying to one dollar is our goal. I think they're actually calling in to correct the NCIS names that were given we're by still the first waiting caller. for someone to call that in <laughs> apparently no one knows uh we've been waiting all day for someone to call in and give us the ncis uh, the phone lines are open <laughs> no one has called in yet to, to give us the correct answer and uh we're gonna keep we're gonna we'll wait you know what maybe they'll call back and maybe we'll find out who these people are who are on ncis i don't know it's tough <laughs> to say at this point but i but i love hearing you talk about discomfort because <clears throat> the same mechanism that powers the same battery that powers your comedy which is discomfort also has the sort of dark side because it's tied to your personality, but the discomfort you felt that 10 million New Yorkers hadn't come see you, that is also a part of that same battery, you know, where you're like, oh, it's only 15,000 people. Like, the glass half-empty thing is part of your discomfort battery. Well, I have, I've always been an outcast, you know? Like, when I was uh, a kid, I've, I've, I've been open about my mental health issues, but I suffer from anxiety and depression. And so I was always just trying to make myself laugh. Laughter was my bridge to existing. And it had nothing to do with – I didn't believe there was a career. I didn't even entertain a career idea in my it's just what I did and if if somebody got mad at me because of something that I did you know before Caddyshack way before Caddyshack and I talked about this on 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 stage you know I didn't want to go swimming in the swimming pool at at school so I threw a chocolate (laughs) bar in the pool you know uh because it looks like a turd yeah but what I, I went once to, I always go too far when everybody came and heard that somebody had shit in the pool, I dived in and came up with it in my, in my mouth sure. and, and got asked to leave the, <laughs> the school. But then I wanted to meet girls. I didn't know how to meet girls. I said, I want to join a team. I was at, in high school, I was four foot 11 and 89 pounds. The only team I could get on was the wrestling team for wrestling under 90. Now, here's a guy who doesn't want to shake hands, but I thought if I got a uniform, I'm going to meet girls. I didn't realize the uniform was uh, like a onesie. It was Mm -hmm. a girl's bathing suit, a one-piece. That's that picture right there. I can't show Oh, my God, that's you? Yeah. That's amazing. But I was 89 pounds. I was... 
I was the I, flowing locks of hair. I did. I not look like a little girl cascading with knee pads. off. There's a movie called Sleepaway Camp, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but that l- reminds me of Sleepaway Camp. I look exactly like Finn from uh, Stranger Things. A bit, yeah. You do. You do look a bit, a little bit. Although they, yes, facially you do. But the 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 mane of hair that's cascading out of your head is unbelievable, and he's got the knee pads well, on. You he's know, got the wrestling speaking gear of on. that, so the only way I could meet girls, like I wasn't shaving, my voice didn't change, I'm 89 pounds. I could nobody would talk to me. I'm going to admit it on your show, but it. I could walk into the ladies' room <laughs> and just stand at the mirror and brush my hair. <laughs> so I go, hi, hi. So what do you? What's your name? <laughs> you know. Terry. No, I didn't have to raise my voice. My have... voice was not changed. Sure. So it was the only way I could talk to girls. I would stand in the girls in the girls' <laughs> bathroom brushing my hair. And you <laughs> met a lot of people this way. But I didn't. It didn't. It. it you, I couldn't make the transition from the girl they met in the bathroom to a date. That was a tough. That I could. I could talk to them. You had a lot of lesbian relationships in those days. I probably could have, <laughs> but I didn't. That's. I. I had no. I, I'm so socially awkward, and to this day incredibly social so socially awkward i just have figured out well a lot of comics are and especially with you know anxiety depression stuff and and which i'm very intimately familiar with and um it, the, when people go but you're a comedian how you go yeah yeah but when you're a comic you're in control of it and when you just walk into a social situation you're not in control of that and that is unsettling you know but to have a microphone you're directing the action of the room so i i i think a lot of comics are actually the same way they can be very right well on a stage person. with a microphone is not intimate at all you know it's not you're it's an audience right and when it gets intimate it's uncomfortable and that's the blind man that's like what if it's one on one but for the most part it's not even even if you are talking to somebody who is you know, you're riffing with somebody. It's still not intimate. You have a light in your eye and that's it. But if you're in a quiet room without an audience, kind of like we're doing right now, and talking to somebody uh, under the guise of a of a podcast, that's easier than just if somebody just showed up. I don't go to parties. Right. And I don't go. I'm really – it's really tough for me. You know, and I'm incredibly medicated even right now as we speak. And it helps, by, it helps take the edge off. I'm alive and I'm here. And I'm, <laughs> I'm you well, know. But, but a lot of people now, and I don't know if it's just that more people experience OCD and anxiety and depression now, or if it's just more diagnosed now. But I do, I do believe that the world is such a, that, that we're so much more aware of everything that's going on in the world that, that I think that people, more people develop anxiety, depression, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder as a response to a very seemingly toxic, uncontrollable world. I mean, it is a very we're see, well. We see life, whether you it. give something a title like OCD, I don't know that you can develop OCD. I think OCD is something that is uh, maybe genetic, maybe I, I don't know. I haven't cracked it yet, but you can develop, you know, mental health. You know, ultimately, all we want to do as human beings is cope. So I think with what's happening now in the world and with social media and with, you know, just that every, we're open to everywhere. There's no, the, everything in, you can't hide. I think that people need more coping skills right now. Sure. You know, the, the news uh, cycle is huge. It's 24-7 and everything's breaking and everything's on the precipice of ending. God, and that's all I could think about when you were talking about Because I remember the days when TV would sign off and just thinking now, like, but what would people do now if they couldn't have, like, a 24-hour news cycle? It was just like, 
fuck off, go to bed. Well, but, what's going on in the world? That, not your business right now. Go to bed. But because it's 24 hours yeah. and because that's a business, yeah. they have to make everything breaking and... and, and sensational. Sensational. And but you use the word sensational. But if you're, if you're uh, kind of in you know, mentally fragile, this sensation is not healthy. Right. You know, and even like headlines and even what you read in print, it's a scary world out there and it's really hard to, uh, go ahead. I was going to say they present it because they know that people are more motivated to watch things when they think their life is in danger right. than just like, oh, here's some things that happened today. Don't worry. You know, they know that it's more motivating. Like, is it? Are, is everything in your house going to kill you? You need to watch this. Oh, here, you know, we might be at war. Oh, this is the worst. This person, you know, it's such a, and, and it's, it's sort of driven by the kind of, you know, the capitalism of the media just trying to get traffic and eyes and whatever. And so they know that, scaring the shit out of people or taking the most extreme points of view. And even the way it's it's presented by, even if it is a headline, it's now more, and it doesn't matter what way you're leaning, you know how the broadcaster is leaning. Right. And that kind of adds, that heightens whatever it is that you're reacting to, you know? Whereas Walter Cronkite or when I was a kid, you know, they were news readers, right. you know? And then I could discern, give me all the facts, and I'll discern how I'll, you know, make my way through this. I was just but- picturing Walter Cronkite going, and here's the news tonight. Well, the libs are at it again. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Never- so that's, but that's exactly, and, and, and it's no better in the left-leaning, you no, know. No, 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 no. It's just like, the, but that's how you got to sell. But they realize that we, as, a, as, as customers, glom on to a, a personality and we glom onto a, 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 the way somebody is envisioning something rather than just a news. We won't listen to facts and try to discern right. for ourselves. We want somebody to do it for us, to feel, to tell us how we're supposed to feel. Right. It's more than just the facts. Yeah. Well, and again, in that case, it's, it's still, it's the same thing as going to a comedy club. People just want community and they want to watch stuff and go, yeah, that's what I already believed. Yeah. I'm doubling down. Yeah. You know, like yeah. they just, we all we all just want to connect, and we all just want those experiences. But I, I but for people who, because uh, I I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast probably, I if they don't have mental health uh, stuff that they deal with, they have certainly grazed it or it's near them in their lives. You know what what are what are some of the coping mechanisms? Like what have you discovered? The main coping mechanism for everybody, and and you're saying people listen to the podcast, they might have had some experience with it. I don't think this is my thing. My whole soapbox is to remove the stigma. I think if you're a human being, you've had a mental health issue. Absolutely. And whether that mental health issue is bearing a child and becoming a parent and bearing the pressure of becoming a parent for the first time, breaking up with somebody, losing somebody, you know, loss, uh, the pressure of work, the pressure of, as I explained, of not fitting in. There's nothing in place in part of our curriculum that gives us as human beings coping skills. You know, you go, I always say, you will take care of our dental health. When nothing hurts, you'll go twice a a year or three times a year to the dentist for a cleaning, a checkup, for x-rays. And they go, you know, look, mom, no cavities. There's nothing wrong. There is nothing in place for somebody that seems that – uh, that seems to be getting along for somebody to 
ask you maybe a few questions and see what your reaction is. And then based on your reaction, maybe make a recommendation of maybe you do need some counseling or help or coping skills. And whether that coping skill is just take a breath, you know, breathe through your anger, whatever it is, or, you know, or just to let you know that the way you feel is okay. Right. You know, and other people feel because in our own minds, it's very lonely and it's very insular and everybody believes that nothing is. And that's the, that's the answer to, for me, I'm not being political here, but there's there's big, uh, you know, talk about gun control every time something horrible happens. And, uh, you know, I'm not a proponent of guns by any means, but I think that anything that happens, you know, and then you talk to the people that surrounded the, the, the perpetrator, there's been red flags their whole lives. And there's nothing in place to really you know put douse this before it becomes before somebody gets becomes armed and dangerous right i mean these are all young kids who have had and i'm not i'm not giving them an excuse i'm it's us as society we aren't taking care of business when we enter school you know there's a school nurse but there's nobody in the curriculum that is a, a, a bona fide psychologist i wonder if part of that is just because the idea of mental health is so delicate for people that if a school psychologist counseled a child in some way of their parents would be like, what the fuck? You're not allowed to. That's my kid. No, you can't. You know, everyone kind of has their own idea about what it is. Right. But but even the insurance companies, I've gotten talked on Capitol Hill. They don't mirror the same amount of funds for physical health as they do for mental health. There's no problem. You know, it's really funny if somebody says, ah, my back hurts. I don't think I can lift today. Everybody's got a card of their chiropractor. Right. But if somebody said, you know, I just... The mood, I just can't really function today or I don't want to go to work. Nobody hands you their psychiatrist. I mean, maybe here in L.A. and New York, that, but in middle America, that's just not the norm. And medical doctors, it's tried and proven. If two people have surgery, the exact same surgery, but somebody's mental state is they just want to let go, they won't heal as fast. The mind over matter is a real, is a real thing. And if we could create healthy minds and take care of our minds – we would – our physical health would – you know, I would imagine a good portion of everybody's bad back is mental. Well, and I also think that sort of what you were saying, the stigma around it, if we can destigmatize it so that people aren't afraid to ask for help or not embarrassed to ask for help or know that they can seek options, that there are other people out there. And thankfully, that's you know where the internet is a big – can be a big positive is that you any, anyone can connect – to other people the way in, in a way that they couldn't when we were growing up where you just kind of had to get lucky and either have you know the right parents or the right person in your neighborhood or the right person in your school but but it you know that's why I like talking about this stuff so casually on the podcast cuz it just kind of makes people listening if they're on the fence go oh okay well, I'm not broken. I just have a thing and lots of people have things and it's okay to go talk about it. It's okay to figure out, you know, how to how to kind of process this even if you don't feel like oh i need a therapist the ability to talk to someone without judgment who's just going to be there to listen and offer some suggestions you know for the state of your you know for the sake of your your mental well-being is beneficial even if you don't feel like you have this big issue to deal you with you know my my analogy is you know if you get if you get hurt in any way physically, you know, you should, you know, you put Neosporin on it and you flush it out and you wash it and you get, if, if you have any 
mental uh, wound, and that's like somebody hurting you, hurting your feelings or whatever. You know, we have a tendency in our society to think that the best thing to do is to bury it and suppress it. But like an open wound, like a cut, wash it, clean it out. And the way we clean out a, you know, a mental wound is at first, if anything, talk about it. You know, just talk, just, and, and, and there's, I do this uh, thing in Canada for Bell. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk. Yeah. I remember yeah. That. I know yeah. That. So, so, and that's the, that's the campaign and it's just about talking and it's not about going to a psychiatrist and it's not about going to a therapist and it's not about taking medication. The first step is what you're doing right now on the podcast is just talk. And maybe there's one person listening to go, you know, it's not so bad that I'm depressed or that I can't function. It's kind of normal, just like it's as normal to say I have a headache. Right. To have these are normal facets of being human. If you don't ever suffer, if you can go through a whole life and not ever be depressed, not ever be anxious, not ever feel like you can't cope. Not, not ever feel like you're at a loss. You might not, be a sociopath. You're right. I mean, <laughs> that's the bigger problem. Yeah. But everybody's afraid to admit their humanity. Yeah. Yeah, because we're, you know, we've been conditioned to think that any weakness is bad. It separates us from the pack. It makes us not a viable member. And it's all bullshit. The most human thing to do is to connect with other people. Everyone, again, unless someone is a complete sociopath... If you walk into a room full of people, 98% of them, when they walked in, it's very likely they were like, I feel kind of awkward. I feel kind of weird. Like, everyone feels that way. Right. Everyone feels that way. And the people who say that they don't are very likely posturing because they just don't want to. But that's why our comedy works. Because we, just by virtue of what we do, we mention these little weaknesses and discomforts and things like that. And what they're laughing at is, yes, it's funny, but it's also relatable if it if if there's if it's not relatable at all you won't get the laugh but that awkward uncomfortable weirdness is what people relate to and that's what makes us all one and that's what makes us each of us unique too you know is that is those feelings right well uh it also gives the audience a bit of a release oh okay i'm not the only one you know and again that goes back to forming the community of people who know that they're not alone, you know? Oh, they've noticed that too. Or even if you're talking about something that you've done, they can either laugh at you because, you know, they, they, you're putting yourself in a sort of a, uh, a subjugated position. They go, oh, that guy down there is kind of an idiot. That, but for a lot of it, it's, oh, I, I, I did that too. Oh, well, I that's that how, too. you know, oh, that's that what too. turned me around. I talked about it in my book. I've talked about it before. Maybe you know the story. But I was on Howard Stern in early 90s. was the first time I ever talked about this, you know? And I was on with – I was uh, – you know how he has a couple of guests on? Yeah. Not like you who just has one. This just is so one. Not, yeah. Just one. But he had, he had the guy on that did puppetry of the penis. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And the guy was sitting beside me and uh, he, he's able to take his penis and – Make create, it turn into a watch and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Great characters. It's a character piece. <laughs> I'm not into theater as much as some people, but – He's the, uh, the carrot top of cock play. Basically, there he is. Yes. So, and he, they finished with him first, and I was fixated because of my germaphobe and OCD on the fact that this guy's touching his dick, and then there's no wet naps, there's nothing, and then he leaves, and I see him grab the handle of the door. Oh no! And he leaves, and the whole rest of the interview, I'm fixated on the doorknob, thinking when I leave, 
how am I going to touch this doorknob? It was the summer. I had short sleeves on. I didn't, I couldn't pull down my sleeve. And that's, anyway, it seems like an eternity. And then finally I hear Howard go, well, thanks, Howie. Thanks for coming by. And I go over to the door. And I want to try to open it, and I, do, I can't figure it out. And I said, does somebody have a tissue? And they go, what do you need a tissue for? I said, well, I like a, a handle. The guy, the guy touched it with his – he touched his dick, and he touched the handle. Can I, I don't want to touch the handle. So, Howard, they decided to play. They go, open the door. I go, I'm not going to touch the door. You touch the door. I went and found the Kleenex. They took the Kleenex away from me. So I went to take my shirt out of my pet. They, they held that, and they were going, uh, you know, just touch the door. I really have OCD and I started having a panic attack and I thought I was going to have a heart attack and I couldn't breathe. And out of just desperation, I said, Howard, all kidding aside, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm medicated. I am going to drop and have to be taken to the hospital right now if you don't open the fucking door. And he went, I'm sorry. Okay. And that was the first time. This is like in the beginning of the 90s. And so he opens the door and I walk out in the hall. And as I walk out in the hall, I hear on the speakers, we were still broadcasting. (gasps) So this whole thing was on the air, yeah. So I, you know, and this is the early 90s, and you talk about stigma. So the stigma is there, or it's the late 90s. This this stigma, at least for me, as somebody who's, you know, my age, I was born in the 50s, I hear, oh my shit, I said this on the air. My life is over. Number one, this is a national radio program. My kids, who at that time are in school, are going to be so embarrassed that their father just admitted on national radio that he's a mental case. Number two... I'm never going to be able to get a job again because I know that, you know, they put, there's millions of dollars in every production. Why are they going to hire somebody who's got a mental health issue to be part of their production? That's in my mind. And that's where the OCD is now focusing on that. Well, and then I thought that this is just embarrassing. This is the end of the world. And I just, I could feel a physical drop in such depression. I just didn't want to go on. And I remember walking down that hall like dead men walking, got into the elevator, down the elevator in Manhattan. And I uh, was in the lobby heading out onto the street. I could see all the traffic and the teams of people. I never felt more alone in my life. And I thought, like, what do I do? What do I do? Maybe I'll just run into traffic. And I walk out onto the street. And I'm about I'm just getting my breath. My head is down. And some guy comes up to my periphery. And he says, uh, just beside me, he goes, are you Howie Mandel? And I go, yes. He goes, I just heard you on Howard Stern. And I, I feel my heart drop into my stomach and thinking that's it. And he whispered, <laughs> this has different meaning now. But in my ear, he goes, me too. And I oh. go, what? He goes, no, I, I have uh, OCD. And that was so nice to hear somebody, you know, I suffer all the time. And we started talking. And it was the first time I thought, well, you, you too, I'm not alone. It wasn't even big. Emails weren't big then. And I started getting mail, you know, and saying thank you for talking about it and doing it. And, do it. and it was the first time I realized there's, a, there's like a community of humanity that is suffering like me and I'm not alone and I shouldn't be embarrassed. And no one had talked about and it And nobody had ever talked about it. And there was a time had I not had that moment, I wouldn't have this discussion with you right now. Never. I would never. You, you got to think like I'm that happy crazy, silly guy that's on stage and not have any sense of who I am or how I feel or how I function. But isn't it interesting that that goes back to the thing you were talking about when you pointed out the blind guy on stage, that a lot of times the things that we think are catastrophic mistakes can be flipped because they're very special, real, authentic moments? I'll give you one other one. I'll give you one other one that might ring true for you. So in 2005, I was kind of in a bad depression and and, uh, my career was really waning. And I got a call from NBC and they said, we want you to host a game show. 
And I said, fuck no, and I hung up the phone. Now, you have to realize that in 2005, if you really go and look, no comedians had hosted game shows. It used to feel like the kiss of death, like this is the end of my career, I'm hosting a game show now. That's how it used to be. And as somebody who trades on irony, the the game show host was the punchline. Right. Right? And as Pat Sajak would say, and I'm not saying Pat Sajak (laughs) is is a joke, but that was the... That was the joke. You'd act like a game show host. You would, it was the nail in the coffin of a career. So I went, no fucking way. Within 15 minutes, they call me back and they say, no, Howie, there's this format that is really big all over the world and NBC has bought it. And NBC is saying that they want to do it every night in succession for one week. At that time, that has never happened where they hadn't given an hour of prime time to one show for a whole week. So I went, no, no. So you're telling me the nail is going in the coffin of my career. You want to hit it in every fucking night of a Seven nails. (laughs) Goodbye. And I hung up the phone again. The third time they call back, they go, can he just show you the game? I said, you know what? I don't even want to go anywhere. I'm at Jerry's Deli deep in the valley. If he (laughs) wants to come and show me the game, let him come show me the game. So this guy named Rob Smith from Endemol comes out to the valley. I just showed you. Yep. He made out of, uh, uh, what do you call that, art paper? Like a, he just cut card. Yeah, he cut out. Cut, I saw It's in the hallway. It's like all the pieces with it. Right, says, but he made it himself. He didn't go to Kinko's. None, none of the lines are straight. Nothing. He shows up at, at, at Jerry's. He puts this card down, and he shows me the game. And he tells me there's going to be 26 bikini models, and you're going to say open the I said, but it's just, what's a, is there trivia? No. Is there a skill? No. <laughs> Is there, what is the, like, there's no game. He goes, well, we can't do it without you. We think you're perfect. So I I go home and I tell my wife and she goes, uh, she goes, why don't you want to do it? I said, because it's going to put a nail in the coffin of my career. She goes, Howie, you were just at Jerry's by yourself eating soup and now you're at home. This is your career. (laughs) Take the fucking deal. So So I called them back. I called them back and I said, I'll do it. And they said, when, I, I, I said, when do you need me? They said, we tape Monday. This is a Friday. This is like my St. Elsewhere story. I go, well, don't you have to build a set? They go, no, we built a set. I go, well, don't you have to hire the women? They go, we hired the woman. So now I'm thinking, how far down the rung of people they needed? How many people have said no that I'm available on Friday at 4 o'clock for a show that's taping on Monday? But regardless. So I said to them, can I hire some of my friends? Maybe we can do comedy because I was hearkening back to the only comedians I know that did game shows were Johnny Carson and Groucho Marx. Right. At the time. Right. You know, not at my time. At the, you know, before that, I couldn't. And the, Groucho Marx was really funny. I hired some of my comedian friends, and we came up with, like, real funny lines, and it was going to be funny, and this is what I would do, and this is how I'd fill the time, and I'd take a break. And they let me do that, and I, I wrote that. The first day, and I have the picture here, the first day, and I'll never forget, I did 500 episodes of uh, Deal or No Deal. They, they, I'm on the set. They go, deal or no deal. The crowd roars. Ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. I walk out and I walk up to the very first contestant. Her name is K- Karen Van. Okay? And I have a picture of her and I'll never forget this. And I was going to be, I look at her in the eyes and I say, tell me about yourself. And she says, my name's Karen Van. I have three boys. They're right here. And there's three young children, beautiful boys sitting in the, in the audience. I've never had health insurance. She's never owned a house. You know, she has no money. She just lost her job. And I'm thinking, you know, first and foremost, I'm a human being. And this person is standing in front of me telling me she has nothing. And at the time, a million dollars even today. And outside of L.A., she could walk away with a million dollars. 
And I'm looking at her, and you know this, Chris. You've been on the set and the wall and everything with people who aren't on TV. There seems to be a glaze that goes over people where you can tell they're not – you know, uh, they've never been on TV. It's, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And you could see that overwhelming feeling in somebody's eyes. So I said, she's not really focusing. And, you know, she picked the first cases. And then the banker calls. And the banker says the offer's $20,000. And this is where I got my cadence. I said, she's not listening to me. I can't do – I'm not going to do the routine that I had planned because that's going to – that'll pull focus to that. And she's in this other world that – she better take this offer. And I changed my cadence to, you know, Karen, the banker wants to give you $20,000, you know? And it it created drama, but the drama was, you better take this, right? you know, deal or no deal. And I realized that, you know, and she was just having a good time and then no deal. And with, with, you know, she's going to show me, she's not going to take 20 grand, you know? And I felt like, Oh my God. (laughs) And it made me more serious and made me more empathetic. You know, I just, it became about her. This girl is digging a hole, not only for her, for these three boys sitting behind her. She's turning down all this fucking money. Quit turning. She ended up turning it down all the way. She went home with five grand, which is good, but not, Great. Right. And it was because and, – and I was so embarrassed. I did all these shows. I didn't do any of my comedy. I just – for the first time ever on television, I became Howie Mandel. And it was just about I just want you to do as good as possible. And that's all it was. And I was so embarrassed after I tipped the five shows. I got Terry, my wife, and we got on a plane and I flew way out to the Caribbean. I didn't want to be anywhere near where this aired. I was so embarrassed. I was a comic who wasn't working that much, who just became a game show host, who did not one thing funny. And I just, I was just trying to get people to walk away with more money. That's all, that was my only goal. Just, I just want you to change your life. And the first day it aired, uh, Rob called me and goes, you're not going to believe the ratings. And the next day, the ratings went up. And it became this phenomenon. And I landed back in Miami. And within 30 seconds, somebody looked at me and went, deal or no deal. And that became my catchphrase. Nothing has changed my career more. And nothing has given me more success than deal or no deal. Like beyond doing, you know, people who watched Bobby's World knew Bobby's World. People who watched St. Elsewhere knew St. Elsewhere. People who watched HBO knew me as a stand-up comic. This is the first thing that brought all those audiences together. And it was the first time that, and I thought it was the most embarrassing thing, is the thing I didn't want to do, is the thing I could tell you honestly, I did nothing for, but be myself, but I, but being a human being and wearing my heart on the sleeve. You know, they always ask me to do Hollywood game night at NBC, and I can't. And I tell them the same reason, I can't do it, because that is about... You know, a a real person will be sitting on the couch and celebrities are playing games, but we have to be entertaining and goofy. And I, I, I said, I'm so afraid that if I do something goofy or entertaining, I'll pull the focus. They'll make a wrong decision or not get the answer. And if they lose a hundred dollars because you're going to, my heart, will, my heart will break. I'll I kill. did Hollywood game night and thankfully we won, but it was, but I understand what you're saying, but also just that idea of being in the moment feels like every time you've been honest with who you are, whether it was the wait, 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 no, wait, 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 or the Howard Stern thing or deal or no deal, it has worked out in your favor. And it seems like the the lesson is don't be afraid to be yourself. 
and you're also not the best judge of like what like no. what, how you're how people are going to perceive but you. The, the, uh, but my lesson in my life, my life lesson is from Nike, and it's just do it, and and let's do it without thought. Because anytime I think about anything, it doesn't work out as well as the thing. You know, if you overthink it, if I had gone with my gut, like my my thinking. I would not do these things if I, I didn't know I was auditioning for St. Elsewhere. You know what I mean? I just did it and I showed up and I got that. I, uh, my gut told me don't do deal or no deal because I overthought what it would do but to my Was that career. your gut or was that your brain? That might have been your brain. Yeah, I don't know. I can't tell the difference between my gut and my brain and that's the issue. But the thing is – you're right. I don't know what I'm saying. But I just say yes and I just do it. And I uh, – nothing that has worked out for me has been anything that I've overthought. Right. Right. And the one time I did overthink, I, it was the wrong decision to not do deal. And my wife, who did the thinking for me, made me do the right thing. <laughs> but it, but you, that came out of you said the things that you're most embarrassed about and the things you're, those are the things I was so humiliated that I had done five hours of network television just trying to get people to well, better it under, their lives. It, it, it also, it also and, and I think this is, you know, a lot of young comics go through this where they're trying to write comedy or do a thing that they think the audience wants to see, like we were talking about. And then at a certain point, they might just accidentally say something that really happened and people laugh and they go, oh, that's not funny. That's just my life. Like, no, no, no. That, you're, the, you're the thing. You're the thing that's funny, not some idea, uh, that, uh, some image that you're trying to put into the world. That's fake. That's right. fake. What's real, and, and that's why, and I think especially for people who maybe suffer from anxiety or depression or anyone ever, but the idea that we think we have to feel something in order to be doing something is, is false. The, the truth is when you're just being as opposed to trying to do, I think that's where the magic happens. And that's where, as a performer, you're just trying to shrink that uh, barrier between yourself and yourself on stage and yourself and the you know and the more yourself you are just being yourself that's what people connect with it's not like oh i wrote all these killer jokes you know it's I'm, humility and humanity yeah you know is the most relatable thing and mental health over dental health what 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 guys huh who's <laughs> with me the mic any callers on the ring anyone on the <laughs> did we find out who the ncis uh people were what'd you what'd you say i don't know uh because Oh, Polly Perrette. Yeah. Oh, she just left, right? Yeah. Anyway, hello. You're calling into the podcast. Yeah, I don't. How come you didn't know that um, uh, NCIS is, uh, was Polly Perrette and, and David McCollum and then Sean Murray and Michael Weatherly and Brian Dietzen and Rocky Carroll and Gorta de Pablo and Emily Wickersham and Lauren Holly and Sasha Alexander? Oh, my God. You're so right. I'm so sorry. I missed all those things. I apologize. I can see you by the board. Uh, we still uh, have raised zero dollars. Uh, one dollar was the goal. We haven't hit it yet. But I feel confident that we're going to hit that one dollar goal at some point, Howie. We're going to hit it. Really? Maybe. You're such a positive person. <laughs> you know I've, what they say? Less is more. And especially when I'm trying to raise money on your podcast, apparently less <laughs> is more. But isn't it funny? It's, you know, and then just sort of wrapping this up, I want... And boy, there's so many things. We, like, I wanted to talk to you about the Tonight Show as well. I wish I could talk to you for three hours. Will you please... Can I please have you on the I podcast again? Because I, I adore you. And I... But I, I also feel very connected to you in the sense that when you talk about – because people think of you as a very affable, fun, you know, positive guy. And I think some people think of me as that too. And sometimes I'll say to them like, yes, because sometimes I fight so hard at the dark feelings inside that I think I'm 
that's why I want to put so much positivity into the world because I want, I don't want people to feel this way. I feel like I sometimes try harder, maybe to the annoyance of people, to throw, you know, like, well, hey, you can do it, support positivity. I want final note, but that's the thing. You know, people don't realize, they'll go, that's too dark or too soon. Comedy is dark. Yes. Comedy is negative. It really is. It's the, the sense of humor, which I believe most people don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> right. Just because you laugh at a joke doesn't give you a sense of humor. It means you so like comedy. Like, it means you like to laugh. Right. But the sense, find the sense where there isn't comedy. And it, even in its purest form, if you laughed at a clown falling down at the circus, you're laughing at the misfortune of this <laughs> weird-looking guy. This poor, multicolored man with a silly nose. Right, but that's not empathetic. That's sad. When you hear a joke that two guys walk into a bar, what you're waiting for is something disastrous to happen to one of them so you can laugh. Right. You know, so laughter always comes out of negative. And whether it's a, a horrible story that happened to you that you turned funny or you're, or you're pointing out the – the like something a, a weird um idiosyncrasies yeah but which is probably fine there's a guy on AGT right now that is has Tourette's you know he's a really great comic but that's my point and and my point is you could say you shouldn't make fun of that you don't make and he can and he does, and he makes us comfortable, but he makes his Tourette's feel like any inability we might have to do something. So we, that's what we relate to. So it's never too soon. It's too soon for somebody that doesn't have a sense of humor. It's never too dark. It's too dark for somebody that doesn't have a sense of humor. Right. But amongst comedians, <laughs> we could sit and talk about anything. Sometimes when you go out into the public, because not everybody has a great sense of humor, you have to curb that. Sure, sure. Well, inside, just like you said, inside all comedy is the seed of something tragic because it's a coping me- – that is a coping mechanism and it's also a bit of armor and it also empowers us when we have the ability – to stand and point and laugh at something that was horrible, we are ultimately saying we have power over this thing because we can we can belittle it now, you know. Yeah, Whether it's you know death or something terrible or some sort of, that it was, you know, it's it's very empowering to be able to. I would, I mean, I, I I went on stage days after my dad's funeral because I felt like I just needed to talk about it on right. stage and I needed to get some power over it, you know, and and that was incredibly, uh, incredibly healing for me to be well, able to I gotta do say that. the dark, you know, the, maybe we've never talked about this off air, but the darkest day of my life was the day I buried my father, and I have never laughed harder in my life at the things that were happening that day. You know, we found things that were so absurd, so dark, so horrible but I was laughing myself in tears, and that was my panacea yeah. for depression. And laughter is always whatever. That's my, you know, that's my lifesaver. That's I need it. So whether the audience laughs or not, I need to laugh, you know, and that's that works. So do what makes you happy. Discover who you are. Be authentic to you. Be, don't do. There's a lot of great little nuggets today, I have to say. And I hope that people. When are you? When are you performing next? If you do 200 nights a year, where are you performing next? Do you, um, I don't know. I, in the next week or so, I think I'm in the New York area in Florida. I or, or I don't know where. Where can next. people go to see your dates? Um, are you, go is, to Howie, Howie, Howie Mandel. Mandel. Com. Com. Yeah. Great. 
Yeah. Uh, thanks, man. Thanks for having me in your office. And thank you for being so welcoming. And thanks for doing At Midnight when it was on. My, our showrunner was also the guy who also worked on uh, Deal or No, no Deal, Jack. Jack, Ma- Jack, Jack. Martin. Yep. Um, and uh, it's and just... we share the director from uh, Talking Dead. Russell. A- yeah. Russell also directed. Hello, darling. This is Russell. Yes. Directing America's Got. Are you doing America's Got Talent again, darling? It'll be so great to have you. <laughs> That's He's fantastic. I love him. Yes. Yeah, and thanks for, thanks for letting me um, uh, fuck around with you guys on AGT again, because that is an absolute blast. You're amazing. Show black. You're oh, amazing. Thanks, man. Uh, and as always, the end. Enjoy your burrito. ID 10 scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.